All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Two Planker Podcast. We are on episode 13. Uh, and today on the show, we have Adam Spensley, more commonly known as Twig. So Twig is the editor and content director at NewScholars.com. So in this episode, we talk all about the culture. Uh, what is and isn't core, the importance of crews, why judging is so difficult, a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, we finish off with viewer questions, which can be submitted on our Instagram, at TwoPlankerPod. Um, if you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating. And yeah, that's it. Hope you enjoy it. So, uh, Twig, who are you? What do you do? And maybe how'd you get that name? <laughs> um, okay, so... I think I'll probably deal with those ones separately because they are completely unrelated. I am the editor of New Schoolers slash the content director now, I guess. Um, I basically head up all of the content operations over there. And I'm not entirely sure how having grown up skateboarding in the UK, I ended up there, but I did. So um, it's, that's been an awesome ride and I'm sure we'll delve into that. And as for the nickname, the nickname I've had since I was like six years old and I was, and still am to some degree, but like what even more so back then I was a skinny little kid and I was playing for my school rugby team and someone, I can't remember who, one of the teachers was just like, how can this guy play? He's just a twig. But then I was pretty quick and I was good at the sport in general. So I stuck with it for a bunch of years and stayed on the team. But from that moment on, everyone was like, oh, that's the Twig guy. And then it just like slowly morphed into people calling me Twig. Now it's like, I just stick with it because it's memorable. And especially in places like the ski industry, it actually helps to have a name that people remember. And Adam is pretty boring. So yeah i stuck with it and so how old are you now i am 33 years old great so you've and had that name for about 27 years yep yep <laughs> i i've been i've been sticking with it and now it's all people know me by i'm sure there are a ton of people i know in the ski industry who have no idea what my real name is yeah that's pretty funny um so let's go into like what are some like the nitty-gritty of your responsibilities at new schoolers as the editor and and kind of uh, content director? Um, so basically my role at New School is, is to kind of define the voice, I guess. Um, so to a greater or lesser degree, select which content goes on social media, what we're gonna promote, what content gets commissioned, who gets paid to write, um write some of the content myself and yeah basically just define from an output perspective what new schoolers is and there was when evan heath was still at new schoolers we kind of split that responsibility but he moved on a year or so ago and i have been running the whole thing since basically mm -hmm. and so do you do you come from a ski background you hinted that you came from a skate background when you were younger but how do you how do you stay so tuned in on like the the voice of the ski community so yes i come from a skate background um i grew up skateboarding in london and only skiing on family holidays until i was 
19 and when I yeah I, I finished high school well, we call it school and um, I basically messed up all the ligaments in my ankle pretty badly so I had to take what was going to be at least an extended break from skateboarding um, and I spent a couple of months being bored out of my mind at home and then I jumped on a plane to Colorado and posted up there for like two months and it was fine to ski in a ski boot like kept my ankle really stable so it was like, like the only thing I could do I could barely walk and I just started park skiing mm -hmm. so that's like how I got into skiing and then in terms of keeping in touch with the ski scene. I've been based in Zasve in Switzerland on and off for the last 10 years and also spent quite a lot of time in Zermatt in the summers. So that gives me year round skiing and almost everyone ends up coming through here. So that gave me an in. And in addition, I guess just through new schoolers, like I started off writing one piece every now and then because I like I got really into skiing. But it grew from there and I got hired as an editor and then it grew as a role and that's just meant that I've met so many skiers at events and at parties and whatever over the years that I kind of just found myself embedded in that scene and yeah I, I think the skateboard background probably has helped a lot in the sense of like I was used I was always even though I came to the ski scene late, I was always like in the mindset of action sports, if you want to call them that. And I've always had a strong focus on and passion for people who do things stylishly and people who make these sports look good from that. I've just like brought straight over from skateboarding. My favorite skateboarders are always like the more stylish ones. And so that immediately clicked to me skiing as well yeah and so that's kind of interesting that you got into skiing as like a young adult rather than a kid because you know a lot of people get in like oh yeah i started skiing when i was four and then i started getting into park skiing yeah. when i was a teenager so did you give yourself like a crash course in in ski culture when you first got into it like how were you how did you become you know you've you've met these athletes over time but when you when you first got into it like what were you consuming for content and how are you just kind of immersing yourself in the entire in the entire culture uh, i think i've always been a bit of a content nerd generally so i watched a ton of skate videos when i was skateboarding and so it was a real obvious transition to me when i got to colorado and i saw that there were parks and i was going to try park skiing to just consume a lot of content and so yeah i watched a ton of skiing i joined up new schoolers in 2007 like signed up for new schoolers in 2007 and spent a bunch of time on there reading threads and watching videos and I guess I did kind of immerse myself in it pretty quickly I have a quite like addictive personality I get really hyped on things and yeah this, that happened with skiing and I was skiing a lot from the moment that I like switched to skiing I was skiing all the time so I did like a month and a half in Colorado or so, or 
No, maybe it was only a month in Colorado actually. And then moved straight to Switzerland and did a season, the rest of the season there. So I was pretty much like went from skiing two weeks a year to skiing a whole winter that winter. And I got, I never got amazing, but I got pretty good pretty quickly because it's a lot less scary than skateboarding. So within a couple of years, I was starting to get some like deals on gear and stuff like that. And that kind of set me mm. down the road of being addicted to skiing. Hell yeah. So I think maybe, um, maybe just like to lay the, lay the foundation, we'll go through like a, just a quick life journey because we've already, I mean, we, I feel like, I feel like we've already touched on a, a couple of years, so might as well complete the whole picture. So maybe right. tell everyone where you, where you grew up and then we'll kind of work to where you are now. Okay. So yeah, I born in London, grew up in London, um, did a bunch of different sports as a kid. I played, uh, football, soccer and rugby and tennis to like a pretty decent level. And I picked up a skateboard when I was like 10. Um, I skated in the same way as I got addicted to skiing. I was super addicted to skateboarding, skated pretty much every day from 10 until 18, 19, when I started to get like these ankle problems coming up. Um, and at that point, that's when I made the switch to skiing. But I mean, I, was pretty embedded in the skate scene in London. I, again, I was never like a super pro skateboarder or anything, but I was good enough to get some like free shit. And I grew up like skating with and hanging out with the guys that now run like palace skateboards and um, are pretty still pretty present in the London scene, though I guess they're getting old too now. Um, and then, yeah, switched to skiing after that, um, went to university, skipped most of the university to go skiing. Um, and then I guess seven or so years ago now, I ended up like starting to write bits and pieces for new schoolers and the role at new schoolers grew from writing the odd piece to a full-time job. That's wow. where I am now, basically. Yeah. That's the, that's like three minute life story. Hell yeah. So before we really delve into the the new schooler side of it, um, just staying on the skateboarding topic. Um, so it seems like if if my timelines are lining up in my head that you were embedded in the the English skate scene at the same time that all the jackass guys were kind of dominating the U.S. skate scene. So how plugged into that were you with like Big Brother magazine and like all the, all the entire American skate scene at the time? Um. That's actually quite a difficult question because I was definitely aware of it. Like every now and then you'd get a copy of Thrasher or Transworld or something. I mean, the skate shops stocked them, but we had our own UK mags. So I was like more reading those than I was reading the American stuff. But I would watch all the big skate videos that came out and even some of the smaller like East Coast projects, because I think by and large, East Coast skateboarding is more analogous to what we have in the UK than the rest of the States. Cause it's more like shitty spots and rough ground and quick feet than it is like perfect schoolyards and handrails and stuff like that. So I, I was aware of it, 
like the jackass side of things i you know i saw a few episodes here and there but it wasn't was never something i really followed but i was pretty aware of the u.s skate scene because the u.s skate scene kind of like leads the skate scene worldwide i mean it's based out of california basically and i followed it to some degree but it was wouldn't say that like that was the scene that i ever had any interest in emulating because we had like our own role model skaters and whatever in the uk so it was more mm. about that that's pretty interesting i wish i had more thoughts about skating but this is unfortunately not a skating podcast so i'll leave it there the rest of my experience is in skateboarding video games so that's about yeah <laughs> there, there's my definitely had some experience. of those it definitely yeah. had some of those yeah so what so um when you first started at new schoolers you're doing these odd articles you know these little bits and pieces um, so are you just, you know, bringing yourself to the event, paying for everything yourself and then saying, hey, I'll write a article, you know, just to kind of jumpstart my career or is new schoolers sending you out to specific events to to write? So at the beginning, especially with the events, I think new schoolers was basically just like taking advantage of the fact that I was in Europe already. And it made it really cheap for them to send me to like be any imitational or whatever, because it was a couple of hours on the train. No one had to fly across the Atlantic, that kind of stuff. When I first, first started writing articles, I was actually still working as a teacher in a high school. Um, I was, uh, I brushed over that bit in my life intro. So I've just dropped that one in there. Um, yeah, I was teaching math maths for us in a high school in London while traveling on the weekends on the holidays to go ski. Mm -hmm. And so with these early articles, are you taking more of a news approach where you're saying like, you know, the five, five W's basically this is what happened. Are you really giving like your slant on it and trying to, to give an opinion about what's happening and how you think, you know, the different things are going on at the event? I think when I started out, I was probably just incredibly stoked and writing super excited to be there kind of coverage of events or whatever, and doing some interviews, that kind of thing. Um, because I think I was just hyped like I at that point. I, I think when you come into anything you you're super excited and stoked and then you become a bit more jaded over time. So I think at that point I was just writing like hype pieces and it was crazy for me to be skiing with the people that I've been watching in the videos. So I think that's probably all that it was. And then over time, I guess I developed more of a balanced attitude towards things, I guess. Mm -hmm. So what were some of those later elements that you were adding? Like, were there, were there consistent themes throughout your pieces where, you know, Hey, what is, what's this athlete's take on this specific issue? you know, and I'm writing about that issue across multiple articles. I think to some degree, I've always tried to focus on athletes that were kind of as cheesy as it sounds, doing it for the love, maybe not making the most money or doing the craziest tricks, but who had great style and who were pushing skiing in the direction that I most enjoy. But in more recent years, at least, where I've kind of had more 
I've been in the driving seat more. I'm writing a lot less myself. So I do ski reviews and I do competition coverage because someone has to. And that is most of what I write now. And I, I try to leave the opinion pieces to others. Mm -hmm. But then again, I guess I edit them. So they still end up saying what I want them to say. <laughs> so so do you leave the, the opinion pieces to others for just workflow sake? Or do you feel like as the, the content director, it's better for you to stay out of the stay out of the weeds and just let other people be the voice for the same ideas that you have, but you can't be the one explicitly stating, you know, this is my opinion. I run new schoolers. So therefore it's new schoolers opinion. There's a bit of that. Um, I definitely occasionally find like it easier sometimes to let someone else be the person who's actually saying something, be it because there's could be some kind of conflict with an advertiser or because they're, Yeah, I, I don't feel entirely sure of the strength of my opinion on something or there's various reasons why I sometimes do prefer to leave it to others, but also it's partly a workflow thing. Like I don't really have a ton of time to write because I'm generally organizing a bunch of different things and doing sort of more menial tasks. I'm also not, and this is obviously a bit of a crazy thing to say having but I'm not like a particularly brilliant writer. I don't think like I, I'm, I was functionally good enough to report on skiing, but it's not something that's ever been particularly a passion of mine. I would say it was more of a, I liked writing. I liked working with new schoolers and I could write accurately and succinctly and produce content that was easy to read, I think, but it's not something I've ever had a flair for. So I wouldn't say I naturally find writing opinion style stuff that easy. I find writing factual coverage or that kind of thing easier personally. And I just think there are other people that are better than me at doing it. And if I can pay other skiers to produce content then that's a good thing in my books. So, yeah. So how does that system work for new schoolers? How, how do people end up getting paid to write? on the website because I don't think it's a very like publicized easily understood process from the outside. I think that's sort of a deliberate thing because especially as editor, but it's almost always been the case even before I was an editor, new schoolers is a community first and foremost. So when people start contributing content to the site, and I see it and I think it's good, then typically I'll hit them up and try and bring them in to the sort of ecosystem of writers and photographers and filmers that we have, depending on obviously what they're producing. So really, if you happen to be listening to this, anything you write on New Schoolers could be treated as an audition. Now and again, people will hit me up on email and be like, I've been a member for a long time. And usually the first thing I'll say, uh, and you know, I'm interested in writing. And the first thing I say to them generally is, well, write something and post it on the site and see how it does. And various people have done that over the course of time. And they're generally the people that end up writing on new schools and people are getting paid for new schools are the people that interact with new schools because 
at the end of the day as a community so we try and keep everything in-house like we're very rarely putting out job listings because usually we can find someone from within that's pretty much how we all got there and that's something we'd like to continue because i think that's one of the strengths of a site mm -hmm. and so who are some of these writers that uh like just that, that you've noticed throughout the years that have been putting out great content and that you guys have uh have brought on board well i mean Sai whitling who does both articles and um drawings for new schoolers was actually on the content program back when I was also just a freelancer and he ended up working to, for blister reviews for a number of years. And, but recently he's, I basically brought him back on board to work for new schools again, now that he's more generally freelance. Um, and over the years, tons of people come through new schoolers, both before and after me, Matt Sklar, Jamie Walter, Sam Turner, um and then who else is writing for us at the moment matt masson is a guy who didn't actually write something on your school as i saw his story so i don't know if you're familiar with the story and i'm certainly not going to do it justice but he was a sort of he was a skier ski instructor working in the alps and he had a fall that left him paralyzed and he basically used skiing as his inspiration to get back to mobility and at the same time as he was doing that he studied journalism and he posted a video of his story on new schoolers he'd been on new schoolers for a long time and i saw that and i hit him up and he's been doing a bunch of written content for us ever since um there are others too erica Ahrens who is our gear editor still to some degree although she now has another full-time job and yeah i mean there's there's been a lot of people and it's kind of a fast can be a fast turnover because it's uh, requires a lot of like self-discipline to write enough to get yourself paid enough to do well and people often use it as a springboard, I would say as well. So they work for new schoolers and new schoolers gives them a chance and they get some publicity and they move on to other roles in the industry, which is great for us too, because it means that lots of the people in the industry worked for us at one point or other. So, yeah. That's very interesting. And uh, when I do these interviews, I try to imagine like, you know, what's the audience's priority. And so some people just like to hear behind the scenes, but then some people also, like when I was younger, um, I never thought I wanted to be a professional skier, but I, I thought I wanted to work in the ski industry really bad. Um, and I still work in the sports industry, but I don't know if I would ever, uh, fully jump into the ski industry. But so for that, for that program you're describing, for example, um, like how does the pay structure work? Because it's definitely, it's not a full-time role. So is it freelance where it's paid per article? Is it more like a part-time setup? Like, how do you, how does that work if somebody wants to pursue that route? Um, by and large, for us, everyone that is freelance is paid per piece. Um, we have more sort of fixed publishing agreements with certain writers, and some people are sort of just paid pay as you go. If you if you know what I mean, like you write something, and I've decided that I trust your 
judgment to put something out and yeah i'll edit when it goes live but if you're writing something then i will pay you to write it and you just contribute when you've got time that tends to be more of the people that are doing full-time jobs elsewhere and just want to contribute because they like the community or for other reasons don't want to commit to a schedule i'm trying to move towards having a bit more of a regular contributor base like Sai's been doing a great job of that like he has a fixed payout that he gets monthly to write to do basically one cartoon or graphic led piece plus one opinion piece every week so there's a variety um i don't mean to get too i don't mean to get yeah. too nosy with the specifics of his deal so we won't sp yeah. talk specific numbers but yeah. um is that a is that a role that that he could is that a self-sustaining role where he can work for new schoolers and that's it? Or does he have to have other jobs? He um, would have, he, he definitely has to do other stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it's only me and Dave and Peter who would be yeah, making enough to mm -hmm. li live off the income basically. Yeah. The freelancers are running. Yeah. It's, it's not like new schools has never purported to be the best paid job in the world. And it definitely isn't, but, everyone that does it does it because they love it yeah and we're very lucky to have those contributors that want to do it but that's that's the situation and i think uh that's throughout this whole experience of mine that's what i've learned talking to people is that you don't go into skiing to get rich you no, do it i mean you love it let alone the content producers most of the skiers aren't making enough to live off even the famous ones yeah it's uh <laughs> that still blows my mind. Like the comparing professional skiers payouts to professional, like any other sports payouts, it really is shocking. Yeah. But, it's yeah. It's but a crazy, we'll crazy industry. Yeah. Um, so just a bit of background on myself so you can understand when I got into the scene, I think the peak of me using new schoolers, I'd say was like the 2012 to like 2014, 15 range. So like, um, like the, like the content I was consuming most was like Steve steps. They see me trolling. Um, and so like rel relative to you, I got into, I got into the new schoolers game kind of late, but even from my perspective, I've noticed like some significant changes in like engagement on the site and like just the, this, this, the vibe on the site overall feels different. Like I'm looking at it now. Um, and you go to the forums and there's like 68 people online right now. I don't know if it's because I was younger and just didn't have like a proper gauge of what was going on, but like, it seems like there's, it seems like there was way more people on there before just constantly commenting and constantly making new threads and producing new content. Like what have you seen that as the changes over time while you've been involved with new schoolers? I think, I mean, you're right. Certainly the forums were a lot more active. If you talk about 2012 to 2014 than now, they kind of, they've stabilized over the last, I guess, three or four years. Um, it's been about the same level of engagement with that. Um, I think that's, to me, that seems like it's more of a general trend. I think forums in general have been on the decline since about that point in time. And there are very few that still exist. Well, like, and I can't think of many that exist at their 
peak level. Um, and I think the way that people have, con have consumed content on New Schoolers has changed a lot too. I mean, New Schoolers, you get a lot of apocryphal threads about how New Schoolers is dead. And that's very much not the case. The traffic's still amazingly good for a website. Um, we have quite a good insight into that because we see traffic numbers from other websites in our network. Um, and New Schoolers still does well in terms of traffic, but it's a different kind of traffic. It seems to be more people will see stuff on social and log in and like just click in, browse a couple pages and leave. And then there's that core network of forum users and there's more of them than you'd think, but certainly not as many as there were back in 2012. Mm -hmm. This is, and yeah, that, that's something I didn't really realize. I think even when I was, um, talking to Zorko, like, I didn't realize that new schoolers is kind of a relic from the internet past, like for specific forms to discuss a, a hobby mm. used to be huge. But now there's just subreddits. But I don't think there's there's been any nice replacement for discussing um, skiing online, like you go to Reddit, and you go to the skiing forums, and it's like, just super cringe, like not in touch with the community at all. But you back in the day you used to go to to non-ski jabber and it would just be reddit threads that were like ask reddit threads that were stolen so i think that new schoolers occupies a very interesting space in terms of um online discussions yeah i definitely agree and i think i mean from what i know and it's not much because i don't do it pink bike has a similar space in mountain biking but i think in terms of Snowboarding and skateboarding and surfing, at least, New Schools is unique in the sense of it still, I mean, it's shrunk and a lot of things have moved to social media generally, but in terms of actual discussion and actual sort of focal point for, an, for a sport, New Schools is still, in my opinion, at least that. So when, and you, and you see it, I think people are less, moved to discuss things on the internet in general, possibly because it's, there's just an overload. You spend your time scrolling through Instagram, you spend your time, you see so much stuff that less stuff sticks in the mind that you want to discuss. And I think in a sense, the overload of content means that each individual piece of content probably gets a lot less discussion in general. But when something happens, the thread blows up on new schoolers still. I mean, the Olympics, X Games judging, those the kind of like big new movie releases, cool brands launching products, all of that stuff. You still do see these threads pop up on new schools and lots of people discussing them. And for me, that's a really nice thing for skiing to have that because I occasionally still stay in touch with skateboarding, for example, and there's nowhere I feel like I can go to have that discussion. Mm -hmm. Whereas if people feel strongly about something, then they can have that discussion on new schools. And that's, that's always been a super important thing for us to keep as part of the site because we've never got close to it, but over the years, it's certainly been suggested that we just went full WordPress and published content and called it good because it would be in 
vast amount simpler for us to run as and cheaper for us to run as a website if it didn't have to run on the archaic platform that it is. Yeah. Um, and this is something that I talked with David about. Um, and I feel like you would have some insight because he said that they, and I think you might've mentioned at the beginning of this, that you really, you're really in touch with the soul of new school skiing. And so what I talked to David about briefly is like, who's driving the, the culture in skiing? Cause it's always changing. And, you know, I, I theorize that it might be new school, new schoolers.com is driving the culture, or perhaps it's just the mirror that reflects the culture. So what do you, where do you think the culture is being driven from? I think it goes both ways. I think you probably could have said in 2010 that New Schoolers was the primary driver of the culture. And I think that is less true now with the diversity of social media and YouTube and other platforms. But I do think the discussion that happens on New Schoolers and the the way skiing is portrayed on new school is still has quite a large influence on the direction in which skiing is going. It's still pretty rare or it's definitely not as rare as it used to be, but you'd still generally find up and coming skiers on new schoolers before you see them anywhere else. It used to be because new schoolers was the only place for them to go. And now I feel like there's almost an overload of social media. So, so many people get lost in the wash and they can stand out easier on new schoolers than they can in on Instagram, for example, where there are literally 15,000 amazing skiers with a thousand followers. Yeah. And, and that was another question I have. So what role do you think that Instagram is playing right now in, in skiing? Because it really is, and I think you bring up a good point. It's changing how people get recognized and that definitely impacts how people get sponsored, you know, because, because why would you sponsor someone that only posts on new schoolers when, you know, Joe Schmo can get 15,000 followers by being, by being creative, but not necessarily by being the, the best skier that's out there. I think Instagram is one of those things where it's definitely a blessing and a curse. And I think different sports have handled it slightly differently with slightly mixed results from what I can tell. But I think in general, we're probably going to see, a, and I think we are starting to see it already and have been for a year or two in our traffic and our, the content that we see being uploaded is that there's a sort of frustration with the format of Instagram and the questionable validity of people's followers and all of all of that stuff. I mean, you just go around commenting on a bunch of Instagram things and eventually get lots of followers or you can pay someone to get more followers. And I think it was a super important metric for brands and still is in sponsoring skiers, but it will and already is possibly becoming less so. I think there's a real appetite for longer content, at least among the those who are driving skiing, I guess. And I think that that will separate 
to some degree over time i think there are you're gonna see examples of skiers that are just like social media skiing but i also think you'll probably see the more core ski brands distancing themselves from that over time because I, I at least i hope so that's what i would like to believe because i believe in people bothering to go out and film in the streets and bothering to save their shots and making something that I will remember. And I guess I see that more. Um, I think David mentioned in the last podcast that our social media guy moved on. So about a month ago now, so I've been actually running the Instagram and by and large, I don't use social media very much myself. So I've really noticed doing that, that I click on a piece, I think oh, like, that's a cool clip. I post it on the new school's gram and then I forget it straight away. And I think people who are putting their life into skiing don't want their content to be viewed like that eventually. So that's why I think the longer projects are here to stay and they're gonna come back, I think more. I hope. And I, that will benefit new schools. And we had a great season, partly because of COVID. Um, we had a premiere season where we launched basically one full length project every week on new schools. And they all crushed it. Like they, they got the stuff on the site got as much traffic as the stuff we're posting on Instagram, but for a project that's 20 minutes, not 30 seconds so I hope that the brands can look at that and see that and I, and I guess it's more of a question for the bigger brands because the smaller brands already do it I think I don't think um, there's any question that brands like ON3P or Vishnu are sponsoring skiers purely based on their Instagram output they already love and support the culture entirely and so they are going to value the traffic they get on longer projects differently from the value that they get on an instagram clip because they can see that that's stoking out the kind of skiers that will buy their skis and the same i'm sure goes for outerwear and other other things within skiing but i'm hoping that the bigger brands and the non-endemic brands can see that the fact that someone watched five seconds of something crazy on Instagram and then forgot about it is not equivalent to someone sitting down and seeing 20 minutes of content that might include their products and actually stick in people's minds. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the case. And so I think that we will see that come back more. That's good to hear because I, I, I agree that that's a trend that I've been seeing. I forget when I, when I last mentioned this, which episode it was, but like a return to long form, a return to film, a return to vinyl. Like there, for some reason, people have this yearning for, uh, to kind of revert back to older technologies and older styles, which I think is interesting. That's like a, you know, trends are kind of cyclical anyways. So, so you've seen, you could see that in other industries too. Um, the question I have for you. Um, is how, when, when thinking about skiing, 
how much do you concern yourself that when thinking about the culture of skiing, how much do you concern yourself with the word core and what core means? Cause I hear that a lot and we throw it around a lot, but like, how would you even define it or like put your finger on what's core and what isn't, or maybe to be easier to define what isn't core, because I think, uh, I think it's, it's, it's a difficult question. Mm -hmm. And I think the concept of core has its plus sides and its, uh, negative sides as well. I think, for me, it can definitely be, you can get this like too, school, too cool for school, gatekeeping, toxic culture of trying to be as cool as possible and only the thing that you're doing is cool and everything else is not cool. And I think that's pretty toxic and it can almost, I would have thought, like kill off a sport if it gets too detached from a broader core of people who love skiing. And so for me, I think the concept of core is important because there is a, there is a sort of, there's a core audience of a sport that drives things like fashions and tastes and everything from ski sizing to ski profiles and outerwear style and, and the things that actually matter to skiing as an industry. And they tend to filter through from the core to the more mainstream over the years. And so in that sense, recognizing that there is a core driving force is important, but it shouldn't ever be that that gets so exclusive and so yeah, so toxic that it detaches itself from the rest of the sport. So to me, I guess a core skier is just someone who skis a lot and it can be slightly different. I mean, you can, in, in terms of a new schooler's core skier, it's probably someone who skis and likes throwing tricks. But I don't think, I think it becomes... At, yeah, it's, it's a very difficult topic to talk about, honestly. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it, I think it, it's an important concept because that it sets the sort of direction and um, what the current, keeping in touch for want of a better word with the current core skiing allows you to predict the wider trends down the line. And it's important for brands and it's important for the industry as a whole mm -hmm. that that core exists. But I, yeah, I, I don't like the like the gatekeeping idea of it either. Like you get every time you get a new brand, you get people saying, well, you're not good enough or cool enough or whatever to ride that brand. And it's like, well, I wouldn't be thinking that if I was owning the brand because there's not enough of these quote core unquote skiers to sustain a business. So you want that influence to grow. I mean, ideally, ideally you want the core facets of the sport to grow outwards and bring more people in you want it to be an open and inclusive thing not a closed mm -hmm. gate kept thing yeah i mean it's definitely a very hard question there's a whole malcolm gladwell book called tipping point about you mm -hmm. know who sets trends and how they catch on so it's definitely uh, not something we'll get to the bottom of yeah. um there's a theory that i read online um 
and I'd like your opinion on this because you're involved in two of the worlds. Um, so skiers want to be snowboarders who want to be skateboarders. So, so someone, I don't know, it, and this, it seemed like a pretty popular theory based on people's reactions wherever I read it. Um, but it could be, and from a certain perspective, it could be seen that skateboarding is really driving skiing just a couple steps removed. What are your thoughts on that coming from like the, the skate world? I think there's certainly a lot of validity in that argument. In a sense, there's, there's a sort of, there's, I've definitely heard the theory put forward that it's always two years, skiing is always two years behind snowboarding, which is two years behind skateboarding or whatever. And I think to some degree that might've been true when people first started touting the theory in like 2003, mm-hmm. but trends move more quickly than that now i don't think you can say that skiers would be dressing like skateboarders however many years ago because they've got instagram they've you know they're seeing the stuff in real time it changes much more quickly but i do think influences generally filter in that direction i think skateboarding is a sort of for better or for worse has ended up in the position as the driver of all sort of action sports Mm. and there are positives to that because i think the skateboarding scene's done a great job of not not all the time but in a lot of ways uh, in having a mainstream again quotes uh appeal while still having large elements of its core ethos intact and it's a it'll be an interesting test seeing skateboarding in the olympics and ski seeing skateboarding as a sort of competitions become a more mass produced thing and that's happened to a degree with street league already but i think the wider repeat wider acceptance of the sport as a sport might could potentially change things in a way it i would argue it has in free skiing but i think skateboarding has done a great job of balancing the core with the mainstream and i think not well i don't think skiing has particularly partly because i think there's a detachment between skiing as a whole and skiing that I'm talking about, which is new school or freestyle skiing or whatever you want to call it. But I think, yes, by and large, I mean, you see in more general terms, yes, you see fashions pop up in skateboarding and then quickly translate themselves to skiing. I think in terms of clothing, in terms of videography, you can see the clear influence. Yeah, that's interesting. And how much of a role do you think that, because skateboarding, there's a clear role of counterculture. You know, that, that, that like this um, the kind of punk attitude, especially with like the early music influences and everything for skating. How much of that do you think was involved in like the early days of skiing? Because there's definitely some elements of that, like as a revolution away from racing and moguls, like kind of trying to replicate snowboarding. And how much of a role do you think that that counterculture is still playing today? Because I suspect that we're becoming detached from that counterculture punk attitude that might've existed in the early days of skiing. I think I would basically agree with that. I mean, I think there is still 
there is still a counterculture in new school skiing and it still exists but i do think from my perspective there's there's a detachment between that and even other elements of new school free skiing so i think skateboarding and snowboarding they have that counterculture at their core and not having that puts you in the minority so yes you get certain competition oriented or mainstream oriented individuals but by and large that core ethos runs through the whole sport so again using that word core but mm -hmm. that you don't really get skateboarders who don't go and film still you don't really get there's a few kinda but i mean they all skate everyone skates street that competes in street events and i don't know snowboarding as well and i imagine that snowboarding is somewhere in the middle but by and large that core freestyle street trick focused branding goes through all of snowboard content so you might be 50 year old dad buying a snowboard with no intention of ever leaving the ground but the marketing content of that brand is still probably going to be a shot of someone airing into pow or doing counter doing extreme for one of a better word things whereas for me with skiing as a whole never had that because free skiing existed and it grew and there was a big bubble of it in I, I guess that was about that same 2010 to 2014 kind of time when there was tons of money in it and it was a cool thing but it was never the only thing it was never this is skiing. There were still always millions and millions of families with kids traveling to the Rockies and the Alps and whatever to go skiing. And that puts free skiing in a bit of a harder place because like if it has a decline in a popularity, it's not quite so detrimental to the major ski companies, for example, because they're still selling skis to dad, but not marketing them via someone grabbing mute on a jump man in the sky kind of style photo like there's lots of skiing that that isn't marketed like that mm -hmm. and then you add in the olympics and competitions and even part of free skiing seems to me to have done an abrupt right turn to there being a bunch of athletes who really do only compete in free skiing but they don't well they i think by and large they do all ski for fun actually and go out with their friends and send some tricks into slushy slow snow for fun but that's not always the vibe that comes across from a lot of skiers and so that does almost to me divide the sport into different cores if you will and I don't think that has happened as much in the other 
sports we mentioned. I feel like they're more of a progression. Yeah, you get comp jockey skateboarders, but and you get skateboarders that hate on comp jockey skateboarders because they're comp jockey. But I guarantee, like, I can't think of any case where those people that aren't that are being hated on aren't out in the streets getting destroyed, throwing down the craziest stuff. Whereas you definitely do get a bunch of skiers who just do the comp thing, ride for their national teams, and that's about it. And there are plus sides to that too. I mean, I can definitely see the appeal. I wouldn't mind not getting broke off in the streets, especially as I get older. But yeah, um, I, I do think that skiing, free skiing even, has lost a bit of that. And I would like to, I mean, one of the things that I think is important to me at new schools is to do what I can to try and keep that going as much as possible. Try and keep the idea that a trick in the streets is worth, worth in inverted commas, more in the park because of what, go, what goes into it. There's more elements of it. There's more. What did you think of Zoot Space? Because for I me, thought it for me personally, before before we get into it, I think that like what we're describing, you know, I haven't really given this much thought prior to this conversation, mm. but what we're describing of the counterculture and the and all the elements of, you know, like working really hard in the street for close to zero pay, like you're not mm. doing a street trick into an airbag first, like you learn mm. by eating it. Um, I think that zoo space represents like all these core elements that we're talking about. So just like I'm wondering as someone who whose job it is to concern themselves with these matters, like what you thought of what I, what I see as like one of the most core quote unquote things I've seen in a very long time. I mean, I think it was a super important movie for skiing and I hope, and I think it's super important that so many people watched it and loved it because it made me feel like there's a chance almost that, if something like that, and it's not only Zoot Space, I think there are other things out there. I mean, I think the bunch, mm-hmm. Quiche, Bulldoze Life, there's a bunch of crews out there that are doing the same thing, really, and producing great content and keeping and, yeah, making no money, which seems to be a prerequisite for some reason. Um but as a whole, those things are, to me, incredibly precious to skiing. And if those disappear, then we're boned. So in that sense, I, I loved it. I think it's one of the best movies of the year. There's no question about that. I think there are other candidates too. I think um, Is There a Time for Matching Socks was very different in the sense that it was much more polished. But in terms of the output and the skiing, was equally valuable um and i and i guess the main thing i think about it is i hope that they get to keep going because well i hope they can i mean they can keep going as long as they want to slash can afford to keep going i guess but i firstly i hope that people will pay them so that they can keep going and from a new school's perspective we're going to do whatever we can to try and promote those things Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. I think, um, you know, 
like I said, I don't really think about these things ahead of time. And like my, my views on all these things are evolving as we're talking about them. Um, but I think that the crews really are like at the heart of skiing because perhaps at least per, maybe me, me going to college a lot like that, that was a dip in my interest in skiing. So I had kind of stepped away from the community, but I also felt like there was a, a void in the community left when like the four by nine guys became kind of mainstream and went their own ways and, you know, became adults basically. And mm -hmm. like just started having their own careers. Um, so that to me, like post four by nine felt like there was a lull that has now been in a void that, that is now filled by these new crews. I don't know if you agree with that or if there's been crews that have been keeping this going on for, for years. I think for me, there have always been crews out there doing it, but I totally agree with the point that the crews are the most important, probably the most important bit of scheme because at the end of the day, having fun with your friends is the point and making good content, doing that always comes across in an engaging and exciting way. And I think, I mean, that's why we have a crew award at the new schools award in addition to the movie and in addition to the edits, because I think they're a super important part of the sport. And that is true in skateboarding and snowboarding as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think what Zoot Space are doing, what Quiche Life are doing, what Bulldozer are doing, what the bunch are doing. There's a lot of crews out there at the moment that are carnage strictly. They are, they are the core of the sport. They're driving the mm. direction and they're doing it with a blend of social media friendly by and large and full length content. And I think that's the future. And I think the ski team, ski companies that managed to come across as crews as well are the ones that are engaging that younger audience that is ultimately probably the driving force because they are the, they, the, firstly, they're asking their parents to buy them skis. And secondly, they're telling their parents what is cool because as you get older, you can't figure that out yourself anymore. Yeah. Um, I almost wonder if, uh, if, if the current rendition of cruise quote unquote is replacing what the, like the void that film production companies left when they all exited the space. Because, you know, you look at like the level one or like, I'm like, I'm an East coast guy. So like the meathead films, those were always made up with the same guys. Like it was, you mm. always see like the, I hate New York guys, basically in both, mm -hmm. in both those film production companies. Um, but they serve kind of like a different role than crews do. I don't know if you like see that, if you see that same distinction or you saw like similar elements of the current rendition of crews in in film companies, but I'm, I'm wondering what you think of that. I think there have always been crews. Um, apart in from a, in, 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 apart from those film companies, mm -hmm. but I think in the, I think the fact that crews have become the driving force is more indicative of probably a changing of scales of budget in the industry than anything else. I think people always rode with their crews and they always had like the people they ride with, but film companies were sort of 
almost artificial crews created by a variety of sponsorship commitments and dedicated filmers bringing the writers that they want to film that kind of thing mm. and i think in the and this is kind of sad in a way but in the absence of the budget to make big budget movies essentially the crew thing that was happening anyway people want to go out and get shots people want to go out and see themselves skiing and produce content and the crew is the become the way to do that because there is no longer any money to pay for it i mean maybe a couple sponsors will chuck in a couple of grand here and there but there's no big centralized force that is going to go out at the moment and sort of unify individuals except for the crews mm. and nobody wants to do it on their own so the crew is kind of like the natural result almost to me and the most fun part of it i mean the most fun thing is going skiing with your crew so it's a very interesting perspective. I like that a lot. Um, yeah, it is. A, it is a bummer that that crews are, apart from being guys with that are friends and have the same interests, you know, and girls are that are friends that have the same interests. You know, like there's yeah. there's girl crews that are putting out great movies. Like I like I watched Laura's uh, movie from Japan. I, I'm horrible with remembering names. I think it was Yosei. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how to say it, but very good very good movie that and i was very impressed by that and i watched it for the first time the other day and wondered why i hadn't seen it earlier um but it's a bummer that the crews the athletes are having to take on the responsibilities of being the production companies too like i almost worry if there's a too high of a barrier to entry um for these crews further down the line you know for like younger people to pick it up but i mean if you're so driven to want to do it you'll kind of just make it happen regardless but that's just some that's just a a future problem I see um, coming down the pipeline to turn a corner on the conversation. Um, so you guys run the new scholars awards and you actually touched on a point that I was, that I was thinking about. So you guys award crew of the year and, and that is having that award is kind of social, social proof for skiers that these things matter to the community. How much, when you guys are choosing the awards, how much do you guys concern yourselves with um, this is what we want to recognize in the ski community because this is the direction that we want to push it? Because I think that's what's happening, whether or not you're intentionally doing it. Like by showing, hey, we value this enough to give it an award, it's almost like, okay, this is what like 10 year old, 12 year old skiers see as valuable. I think that's, it, it is intentional mm. from, my perspective almost everything that we like i see as important for us to do at new school is, is about recognizing the things that i think and other people think are important in skiing so for me when we designed the awards we kind of we had I mean, we had to have a skier of the year and we had to have a uh, whatever you want to call it trick of the year trick of the year whatever it is to kind of make the awards make sense to the people that are sponsoring it or whatever but the point for me has always been to, for those awards has always been to be like right well nobody is rewarding people for making edits nobody is rewarding people for like just going out and making engaging low well not always low but sometimes low quality content and sometimes the lower quality in and by which i mean quality in terms of 
how high budget your dolly was or are you filming it on your phone like you can have amazing low quality in inverted commas again content and nobody was really recognizing that content because people would take one look at it and go well this is not as polished or this is you know how can you value that against something that's really high quality and for me as long as something is engaging skiers and getting skiers stoked on going skiing then it has that value and that sort of the point for me of the new schools awards and was to recognize those skiers and those crews and those values mm. and that um that transcends the awards and that goes into all of the content that i commission and that we run for the site really is i want to recognize and promote the good stuff that's going down in skiing not just the expensive looking stuff mm. yeah and maybe to get meta for a minute but what do you think about the the place that uh, that podcasts are occupying lately in the ski space? Like, I don't know if I've ever I, 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 I've hinted at this in the past, but like the reason that I, that I wanted to interview skiers in the first place is because I'm nosy and I just wanted to ha just know I wanted the stories that, that weren't being told, which is why I, I really like talking to the, the guys behind the scenes that you typically don't hear from. But I what do you what? what do you think that uh, podcasts are doing for the space right now? Because there's at this point, there's quite a few of them. There are quite a few. And I have to say, I didn't really get podcasts at all. And I'd never really listened to one before I blew my knee, which was back in December. And since then I've had a lot of time to sit around. And so I've listened to a lot of podcasts, not mostly, not mostly skiing ones, mostly like philosophy and economics and, random other bits but i think in terms of skiing they're filling that space that the written interview used to occupy i would say so i mean you used to read any skate mag or any ski mag and there'd be a written interview with a famous slash semi-famous skateboarder skier and we did do that on new schoolers but we've slowed down on it a lot because i think the podcast has almost taken over that space and writing is more about telling specific short stories or opinions now and podcasts seem to be filling that space of providing overall information about people both in front of and behind the scenes mm -hmm. and i, mean, I have think you ever, have you ever tried to trans transcribe a podcast it's like it's exhausting oh, yeah. trying to write down what people say <laughs> i mean i've transcribed interviews before and it's not very fun yeah and I think, I think by and large, I think the same goes for consuming the content. I think it's harder work to consume something that's written down. You have to actually like sit there and read it and pay attention. Whereas podcasting kind of like throw it on in the background and yeah, it just sort of happens to you. You can have it on when you're driving or on the exercise bike or whatever. So, I mean, that's when I've been listening to them. And now that I do listen to them, I sort of get why there's so many of them as well because mm. they are they generally end up telling more of the story than a written article probably really would and they're easy to consume so makes perfect sense yeah yeah i've definitely had it's definitely been an interesting time doing this um do you think that new schoolers barring 
you know, any decision coming from the top down will ever go away? Or do you think that it's a permanent fixture in the, in the freestyle skiing place space? I think I, like you say, barring any decisions that suddenly cancel it from an office somewhere, I think new schoolers has probably shown in the last few years that it's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of other thing, other voices and platforms in the industry have found that there isn't enough money there possibly or enough support or backing in other ways. But new schoolers have stabilized and it's even slightly been on the up the last few years, I would say like looking at the numbers. And I think that shows that maybe it's weathered the storm of the initial short form content slash lack of attention span slash modern modernization of content. And it's still here. And to me, that suggests that it's going to be here for a good while to come. I certainly hope so not just because I get paid to do it and love doing that, but no, I mean, I genuinely like taking aside from the fact that it's my job. I think new school is a very important part of new school freestyle skiing culture. And I hope it can continue to adapt. And the fact that it's members change over the years means that it does seem to sort of naturally adapt in a, in a way that other more traditional publications don't mm-hmm. that's very interesting and i actually remember the the point that i wanted to bring out just a minute ago um it's it's kind of funny how i thought about it because uh i was thinking oh i listened to a podcast the other day where a guy was was talking about um judging super unknown edits and not giving too much weight to the filming and then i realized oh i was listening to your episode on oh, yeah. the other show so what yeah. is so what what has your experience been like judging because that that's certainly a tall task to ask you know hey assign you know more value like just like who's the best and like just because a lot of the stuff that we're talking about are big idea are big ideas but i think that judging really tackles a lot of these same ideas and like ascribing value to certain elements so what has your experience been like with judging and kind of like a background of what you've judged and, and, and all of that. So I've judged a variety of things. I've done super unknown a few times, new schoolers awards, um, other contests that new schoolers run. Uh, I refed a couple of slush games. I've judged like two slope style comps randomly. Um, so like a good breadth of stuff. And obviously I watch all the comps as well because I do the reports and I'm definitely sitting there silently judging and judging the judges. <laughs> but um, I, th- I think judging is incredibly difficult and I don't think you can really say with any degree of validity that something in skiing is better than something else in skiing. But I think for me, the things that I would ultimately judge things by is for me, the most important thing is does something make the sport look interesting and cool and attractive, or does it make it look 
unattainable or uh, robotic or unexciting. So to me, those are the those are the important things. So like when I judge super unknown, for example, I definitely weight heavily, and I'm sure the other judges do on things that it aesthetically pleasing things that are creative and we haven't seen before things that could keep skiing exciting and that can be doing a new trick that like there's even crazier spin than anyone's ever seen before but it can also be any other number of things doing things in a different way making something look extremely good to the point where it's i mean obviously that's a relative judgment but I can only judge from my own perspective. So when I'm doing that kind of thing, I factor that in quite heavily. And when you're judging a contest, it's really difficult because ultimately they set a set of rules and you're judging to those rules and criteria. So I totally see how, even when people are usually fuming about the results of a contest, I can see why those are the results of the contest because you, the skiers know the, at least theoretically, the skiers know the criteria beforehand and the judges know the criteria beforehand. And so that there, there should be no surprise almost. But of course, people value things differently depending on uh, their own wants and likes. And mm -hmm. that defines how everyone ascribes a value judgment. But for me, I, I think it's totally representative of all of the question marks and all of the uh, meta difficult questions about a sport like skiing. And for me, one of the biggest problem is in skiing personally, I can take stepping away from my new school's voice, I guess for a second, is that there's to me seems to be a huge divorce between what's valued in a contest setting and what's valued by people that watch skiing. And if you don't, address that value differential then the sport of contest skiing will separate from the sport of new school skiing mm -hmm. because it will know like at least to me the value of a contest is basically as a giant advertisement for the sport and if it ceases to represent or advertise that sport then it will become irrelevant essentially there'll still be amazingly talented, like unbelievably talented individuals doing it as there are in aerials, but there aren't many people who care, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. And so you just, you said that there's some, you almost described like a grading rubric for, uh, for, for contest skiing. So what does this like criteria look like? And like, like how does that, how does the score, you know, cause you watch the X games and they're like, Oh, this person got a 95. Like what the hell is a 95 on a trick? Like, what does that even mean? Is there like a, a like a literal no. scale with different weightings or is it just like no. a rough way to, to, to just assign a value to something that's hard to assign a value to? I think, I mean, I'm not an X games judge. Thank fuck. But, um, the, the number is irrelevant. The, the number is just used to essentially rank the evaluate difficulty and execution and whatever of the tricks so a score of 99 or even 100 is well 100 should be impossible because you can never be perfect on a subjective thing and there could always be something harder 
but essentially like whether the top score is an 80 or a 95 is irrelevant except to the hype tv audience they like to give mm. high scores because it makes it sound more exciting yeah but it's just a ranking value and it's the same for when you judge i mean i at least when i judge super unknown i value rank all of the edits on different criteria and i then trust the numbers to produce the result that i want them to and they always have mm. so for super unknown i trust that it's like uh I hate to use the word again, but like a more core judging criteria, but for something um, more regulated, like a competition, who, who's setting the criteria and what is that criteria? Like, is it explicitly like difficulty of trick variety of, you know, like you can do a left, you get a left spin and a right spin for the same trick. Like, like where's it coming from and what are those specific criteria in the I'm not, contest? I, I don't think I'm in that circle enough to give you a brilliant answer on that, to be honest, okay. but from my understanding, there is there are athlete panels and discussions with the FIS events where theoretically athletes and coaches discuss directions things want to move in, but how much of it changes over the years and how much there were just a set of criteria and athletes have been adap adapting their riding to those criteria rather than adapting the criteria to the riding, I don't know. My instinct from the uh the outcome if you will the way contests are and the way contests look is that there's been an adoption of a set of rules that have defined the direction in which competition skiing is going rather than what i would prefer which would be the other way around which is you look at um sort of the direction of the sport and you derive criteria on a relatively regular basis from that it's not it's not entirely true because there are there have been cases where something new and unique unique has done well in a competition setting but they i would say those were the exceptions not the rules yeah and what what have you found is the is the hardest thing to judge do you find the super unknowns more difficult than the slope style competitions you've done or new schoolers awards like what what, what has been the the hardest value judgment that you've had to make as a judge i think the more, I, I think the easiest to judge is uh, a contest, a re a, like a regular contest, because you have a set of criteria that you are following and you either, you know, did they hold a grab long enough? Yes, no. Did they spin one more rotation than the last guy? Yes, no. It's actually relatively easy to at least roughly value judge how that's going to be and i mean when i watch a contest i'm pretty good at calling the scores like if i watch a run i'm rarely surprised even if it's not what i like whereas with super unknown you add in that element of like personal taste and it's a much more subjective call and that is more difficult to do because well it feels like there's more pressure because you're kind of in a much in, in, to me, it's much more you're judging someone's art and someone's creativity and someone's passion versus their ability to execute certain maneuvers well. So I think that comes with more of a pressure and I'm not entirely sure that you can judge skiing numerically. I don't think you can. I don't think you can have contests that are in any way a valuable judgment on skiing. 
personally, I just think that the people who, the winner, if you will, is the person who excites the most skiers and engages the most of the audience. Mm. Like, and so judging is sort of irrelevant, but obviously there are many circumstances in which you have to judge because you, in Super Unknown, for example, they can't have everyone to the finals. So you've got to pick a certain number of people. And I, but I do find those subjective ones much harder to judge than I do comps. Yeah. But I also care more, so that might be why. Yeah, that's, that, that is also interesting. Um, what do you think of the conspiracy theory that Henrik was given the win for Knucklehuck to make up for um, drama earlier in the X Games? Do you give any validity to that theory? No. No. No, I, I understand why it might seem that way, but I'm pretty sure if you read the criteria for Knucklehawk, it was like, who has the most consistent performance over the course of the night? And there were other people that had one or two banger tricks, but Henrik landed everything. Um, the, cons the difficult thing with X Games, I would say, is that people, they, they do move the... They move the boundaries uh, pretty regularly. So like one year it'll be overall impression and then the next year it'll be scored again. And then it'll be big air could be your two best tricks. And then the next year it was overall impression of the night. And then the next year it was two best tricks again, but you had to spin right and left. And then, so it keeps changing and that does make it difficult, especially if people aren't paying a lot of attention to understand, but I'm pretty confident that the judges always just judge according to the criteria because i've met judges and that's what they're you know trained to do so they go these are our rules and we followed them and that was the outcome and you knew what the rules were before and what i think is good about x games is if that doesn't produce an outcome that people are happy with they might change the rules for next year so that a different thing happens but in this year with those rules i don't give any validity to the conspiracy like Interesting. they just they judged that event with that set of rules and they came up with the outcome that they came up with i think that uh that the competition scene would would greatly benefit from more transparency in the judging criteria because half the time people are sitting at home just thinking what the, like how the hell did that person win like because i, I don't know that, that ties into more like um a greater a bigger conversation about like oh how much weight do you actually give awards because it's like like you said, it's just based off this criteria. It's not like it's mm. objective truth that this is the best skier yeah. at them. It's just, it's just, you have to, you have to add, you have to judge it in some way. And based off that judging, yeah. this person won, but it doesn't mean that it's like a, it's <laughs> concrete truth in the, in no, the universe. Indeed. Yeah. And I think, I think that's difficult because I think I certainly, I, I don't really like contests. I never really have. I hated doing them when I was skateboarding. I hated doing them in skiing myself. I don't like the pressure. And a lot of people don't. But I, I, I see the point in them existing because they are at least in theory an easy-ish access point for people as an advert, advert for the sport. So like free skiing being at X Games might be like, it makes someone think skiing is cool. They try skiing, they discover Zoot Space, everyone's happy. But 
this was kind of the point I was making earlier, which is that I think in skiing, there's a sort of almost a detachment now between the competitions and the core art side of the sport, whatever you want to call it, that is so great that it's got very few proponents of both. Henrik, Alex Hall, there are very few guys who are doing both at a high level. And that that is partly a result of the way in which judging has gone. So judging contests in the way that they're judged and keeping the formats the same and the courses the same and all kinds of trying to create stability in the contest scene has essentially created staleness, which from my perspective and obviously my perspective is a slightly biased perspective and I clearly have my own opinions, but it's created a staleness in the way that events look and combining that with a difficulty in understanding now the tricks that are going on and the way that things are judged and the other aspects of that make competitions confusing. They're running bad weather, so they don't go well. I mean, there's all kinds of issues with that scene. And that's so to me, that's, you can weight the different issues in different ways, but the result seems to be that that scene has somehow got all of the money and none of the interest. Yeah. And that isn't a great, that isn't a very sustainable set of conditions going forward. So either, I mean, the only futures I can see is that either the competition scene reevaluates and becomes part of trends more towards the rest of new school skiing, or it splits off entirely and becomes something where people realize that it's a very cool spectacle, but it's not selling any products. And I think that's, to me, that's where the issue lies, which is that it's rarely, at least within the core scene, um, the skiers who are leaving the contest scene that driving sales of products in the ski industry. Mm -hmm. So, and that, that can't continue that, that sort of lack of balance can't continue because it just doesn't work out economically. Yeah. It's almost the film skiers are, are the ones driving the, you know, what kids are telling their parents to purchase. And then the yeah. competition skiers are the ones being paid for that. It yeah. I, th I, th I think that's pretty much a good representation of the situation. I mean, I know very well established skiers that are making barely four figure sums from their sponsors and have appeared in movies for the best part of a decade. And that's not sustainable either because people won't keep doing that. I mean, some will because they love it, but you won't be able to create a consistent scene out of that. I have no doubt that comp, ski comp skateboarders make more money than street skateboarders, but I'm pretty sure the street skateboarders are still able to pay their bills and rent or even own accommodation, whereas skiers definitely cannot. So, I mean, that, I mean, to me, that's, 
there's a balance that's going to need to be addressed. Either people are going to need to be able to do both or there's going to be a split. Mm -hmm. um, you've seen a lot of events, especially in your early career. Like, What are some of your favorite skiing competitions? Or maybe you don't even, can't even really call them competitions, but what are some of your favorite skiing events that take place? Europe, North America, anywhere in the world, really? Uh, B&E Invitational and Kimbo Sessions. Mm -hmm. And Ski or Die, but I never actually been myself. Yeah, so you maybe uh, give a little bit of background on on what those are for uh, yeah. not initiated. So B&E Invitational was an event that was organized by Phil and Henrik. They basically created a crazy bowl flow course and people rode it for... I can't remember how long it was. It was a lot of hangovers. Five days, maybe. And the riders judged the event at the end and they picked their favorite democratically and that was the winner and the winner took home paycheck. Kimbo Sessions basically is a more affordable, more open version of the same sort of ethos. Uh, it takes place in Kleppen, which is Kim Boberg's home resort. And he basically gets like five houses at the resort and invites a certain number of riders and they ride for the week. And again, you vote for a winner at the end of the week, but it's not very significant. It's mostly a content production exercise, even more so than B&E Invitational was. And I think for me, that's the future of events that will represent what people want to see in skiing because it gives people the freedom to ski the way that they want to ski mm -hmm. no matter what way that is and so you have colby stevenson and alex hall at the same event as you have bmac and lsm and no one's trying to say well no one's trying to say except for the riders who did it better if that makes sense and usually you get a pretty mixed set of results at the end. So the last Kimbo sessions I went to, Jake Nago and Colby were the two riders choice winners. And they, I believe they grew up skiing quite a lot together, but they are very different as skiers. And that's how things should be. Like you, you should be able to be multiple different types of skier and still win mm -hmm. in as much as you ever can win yeah that's uh that's interesting very hard to put commercials in those in those competitions those quote-unquote competitions yeah and, so. and they are and that is an issue is that they're quite difficult to portray on live stream or television because they have they take place over a much bigger time and i think that's why the regular contest needs to be a part of the scene as well. But I just think that they could be vastly varied. So some weeks there'd be no jumps and you would just have the knuckles or you have to have a half pipe hit or like rails with no takeoff. So you have to like all on about, I mean, there's loads of different ways you could design courses to challenge skiers such that different skiers would have a chance, I guess. And oh, yeah. 
yeah. it, it caters to different caters yeah. to different talents across the whole competition. Yeah. Um, what did you think of Tom's event that he did um, at Seven Springs? I forget the exact name of it. Um, the Steel City Showdown. What did you think yeah. of that? Because that was kind I, of like a rails to riches setup, but in a more like competition style. It was very interesting. I thought that was awesome. I mean, that was one of my favorite events. I didn't go. I tend not to go to stuff in the States. I try not to fly if I can avoid it. So I'll go across once a year, but for like trade shows and stuff, but otherwise like I don't back and forth from Europe to the States for all events. And Evan went from new schools, but I watched the live stream and I think I probably did the recap as well, because that generally is what I end up doing. But, and I thought it was an amazing, I thought it was awesome. Like I loved that you had an event that took some of the most talented skiers and put them in a different setting. And I think you could go the same way in the back country, um, like Travis Rice's natural selection does in snowboarding. I think you could do slope style events that are a bit different. I think, I think you could vary up the way competitions were, but it would be difficult to then produce an end result ranking that an organization like FIS or the Olympics was happy with. And that's where the conflict lies. Mm-hmm. But I, as an event and as a standalone, I thought that was awesome. I hope that we have more events like that. I hope they got good traffic and the sponsors were happy and that kind of thing gets to keep happening because I think it's super important. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think we've covered a lot of great topics. This has opened up definitely some new yeah. uh, thinking for myself. So I think we should move into some viewer questions. We don't have a, we don't have a ton. Um, let's see. Uh, Martin Lien asks uh what is the best trick you have landed so i'll kind of tweak that what is the hardest trick that you've learned and what's your favorite trick to do uh my favorite trick is probably just nose butters Mm -hmm. i really enjoy the feeling of just like playing around with them flexing my skis um just like cruising around the hardest tricks probably some random switch up combos on rails. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm trying to think of an example. Like, I don't know. Maybe not even objectively hardest, but was there any yeah. trick that you really wanted to get that you just that that you really had to work for to learn it? Um, I tried a couple dubs and I got destroyed. Yeah, I won't be doing that again. Um. Hardest trick that I've actually, I don't know, like nose butter nine, maybe technically, like the yeah. technically most difficult trick. I guess that'd probably be a better answer. Yeah. Well, there is your, there is the answer for that one. Um, so uh, Grant Harris asks, uh, when will we see uh, more collaborations with other companies like the, uh, the J skis, new schooler ski, the O'Neill new schoolers jacket, anything like that in the future? In the, in the last episode with uh, David, um, if, if anyone who's heard that episode knows the, the context for that, um, in the last episode, he was describing how New Schoolers actually needs to license the right to use the logo from the parent company, yada, yada, yada. But is there anything that you guys have lined up for the future um, that you're interested in doing or anything like that? There's nothing that we have at the moment. Um, merch generally has been something that we've been pretty lousy at. I would say just we don't really in addition to our 
mean roles have enough time to do it well. And so we've kind of stepped away from doing it to some degree, but in terms of like one-off collabs, I would love to do some in the future, but we don't have any lined up. Um, I, I, I have actually been thinking about this the last couple of days and thinking about reaching out to a couple of people and just seeing if we could do something super limited, mm -hmm. but no, no final answers on that yet. So we'll, we'll see. see. I hope so. Yeah. Um, second to last viewer question. Well, last viewer question. And then I'll, and then I pulled the question from new schoolers, um, not directed to, to you, but just in the community. So the last one for you, uh, the Caruso, will we ever see the new schoolers yearbook again? Um, never say never, but it's not in the current plans. Print has been a bit of a nightmare and in general, not just not for new schoolers, that book turned out amazing actually. But I think in terms of how much time and effort it took up, it did not, uh, well, it certainly didn't balance the equation well enough to do another one straight away. It's something that down the line, if the industry progresses in the way it seems to be progressing, which is that people are starting to value more tangible long form content, then maybe it's something we would look at doing down the line. But for now, I don't think the conditions are right for doing that kind of thing in the industry as proven by the number of magazines that are struggling right now. Yeah. Um, and the last, the last uh, question, the one I pulled from new schoolers, what is happening with slush? And do you have any behind the scenes knowledge as to what's happening? I don't have a ton of behind the scenes knowledge in terms of what's happening, but from my sort of, I know the slush guys, Sort of casually not that well mm. um and as things stand i believe they are no longer producing games or cups due to lack of budget essentially um they i i don't know how involved matt or joss want to be anymore there were talks about them selling slush, but I don't have any inside info into how far that got with any parties. So mm -hmm. from what I know for now, it is not currently in operation, though I those guys are great friends. So I'm sure they're producing content and it will come out under the slush YouTube. But beyond that, I, as far as I know, they are done for the time being but mm. i don't know if that will be something that gets reversed in the future or have any inside information as to whether that is imminent mm -hmm. well there you have it there's the uh, current events section to close yeah. things out current events with someone who doesn't even particularly know what's <laughs> exactly yeah. what's going on current, current events with someone who's guessing as much as everyone else is yeah <laughs> Um, figured I'd throw throw a shot out there since uh, I've been I've really been wondering too, and uh, and you're you're the behind the scenes guy that I have in front of me right now. Um, yeah, well, Twig, Adam, it was it was great having you on. Awesome to get to talk to you. Is there anything you want to plug before you leave, or uh, or we could just close it out? Um, I don't think I have anything really to plug except 
go skiing because it's really fun. Um, I'm definitely, I, I've been not skiing this season. It's the first season I've missed in, in fact, I think the longest I hadn't skied prior to this injury was like three weeks in the last five years, probably. And I haven't missed a month for like eight years, I don't think. So it's been a bit of a crazy time to not ski and yeah, just enjoy it because it's the best. Yeah. There you have it. All right.